Hello everyone, uh, welcome to this latest edition of the ICS Everything Digital podcast. Uh, my name's Luke Kenner, uh, I'm the new business manager here at ICS Digital um, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Alice Harling who is the head of marketing at Gossify. Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about a lot of different topics today, um, you know, across marketing, digital um, and brand, um, as well as exploring, you know, what startups and challenger brands like Glossify um, can and are doing when uh, looking to grow within um, the beauty sector and also other competitive sectors as well. So yeah, welcome, Alice. It's uh, great to have you. How's it going? It's lovely to be here. Yeah, very good, thank you. Very good. Yeah, I've had a nice morning and now I'm here, yeah. so yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Um, well, yeah. So I guess um, kick things off. Um, so obviously, I've you know I've heard of Glossify and and you know people at ICS um, have, and I'm sure you know many others have as well. But to those who may not have heard of Glossify, you, can you give us a bit of background and history to the brand when you started? You know how oh. things how things got moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. So Glossify is a professional only um, nail brand. So this means for people that probably aren't in this sphere that are listening, this is a nail brand that's targeted towards nail professionals, real manicurists, not people at home. Um, they were founded, well, Glossify was founded in 2018 by two uh, ladies who were absolutely incredible one of them who was a nail technician and the other one who was a salon owner he kind of saw a gap in the market in terms of you know there were only a few big brands doing this and not much room for the kind of smaller indie brand um, and they've just gone from strength to strength so so from 2018 to now you know the turnover is like tripling wow. it's it's incredible yeah. So yeah, it's a really exciting brand to be part yeah, of. Yeah, I like the use of the term indie brand. That uh, that sounds that sounds yeah. cool. Um, and yeah, so in, in yeah. terms of kind of where you sit within the company, then obviously um, yeah. the the title head of marketing can encompass a lot of different areas. So yeah, um, can you give us a bit more detail around sort of what you specifically do at Glossify, cool. what your role entails, um, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. I mean, I was literally speaking to someone about this the other day, that head of marketing usually means you do everything. <laughs> so it's it's literally, it could be that I am helping clean in the warehouse or I could be doing a strategy with the directors. It's very open-ended. How, how often have you and, had to do you know, that? Oh, when there's when there's a sale or when we do a big campaign, it is all hands on deck. I am packaging those orders with the warehouse girls, but that's why I love it because you know there's no sense of kind of I I'm ahead of, so I won't do that. I am like, let's go, let's get the tunes on, and let's all go get parsley in these orders. So yeah, it's really fun. I mean, I was kind of brought on though, if I'm speaking more as like a generic job role. My job was basically to come in, set up operations, set up kind of processes, start hiring the team, doing the strategy, looking at new territories, working with the directors in terms of how we turn this kind of cult indie brand, as I said before, into something that could eventually be a globally recognised um, brand. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty broad. Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, I guess from a sort of, international perspective then what's I guess kind of what's been um just based off of of what you said there around kind of targeting new territories has there been kind of much movement there um in terms of your international approach or has it been relatively um UK focused so far so at the minute so we're very well known in kind of the north of the UK so my first kind of go-to was right how do we get well known in London so we've recently had a, a collaboration with Condé Nast, uh, Vogue, people like that. We're in Glossy Box in a couple of months. That's a nice little sneak preview because no one knows that. Um, and we've really been focusing on working on those partnerships within the UK. So we've just launched one with Treatwell, who's a huge booking software who I'm obsessed with because I think they're an incredible brand. Um 
but now it's starting to look at internationally where's the fit where is the kind of market that's similar to ours for example i i believe rather than going for something easy like ireland we should be looking at maybe like the netherlands they have a very similar market and market behavior to what we'd see here whereas ireland operates differently and i feel like most brands will always be like right the neighbor to us let's go for ireland Whereas I'm like, no, we could be more strategic with what could work. Yeah, I think, I think that's yeah. a really, a really interesting point around taking a more strategic approach and and yeah, I guess not taking the path of well, what would seemingly be the path of least resistance when you know in reality, um, having done you know the additional market research, um, there's an opportunity, a clear opportunity, um, you know, in other markets like you say the Netherlands. So um, yeah, really interesting, um, and um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of educational for me as well, kind of in terms of those market behaviours. Um, obviously, you know, that's something that that we would look into as an agency. But um, yeah. yeah, that's. Um, Everyone kind of goes, what I think is really useful as well, when you're looking at territory development, a lot of people go off analytics. So like stuff that's, where are our Shopify customers like looking at? Whereas like sometimes it's literally a holiday where like I, I used to work in the Netherlands and I saw that people's fashion, people's kind of what they'd wear on nails or what they do their makeup like was very similar to that of kind of yeah, London. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, right, how interesting, you know, like, when I worked for a jewellery brand, I went to Greece and I was like, women love jewellery here. They love big, bold jewellery. And I was like, that's so interesting. Mm. So it's, sometimes it's just being like less digital and more just aware of what people yeah, are doing. Yeah, like actually kind of removing the the almost kind of sometimes sort of soulless data um, that you can find online yeah, and actually yeah. just going off personal experiences. Like what do human pe- human beings actually dress like what how you like you say how do they do their nails what kind of jewelry do they like exactly. um, ultimately can be much more valuable than than just kind of looking into um yeah, yeah. statistics has to be backed by yeah. something yeah. yeah yeah for sure um, so kind of went off on a, a slight tangent there but there was just a... no we did no Sorry no, no, no that was my <laughs> fault i was I, I wanted to uh there was a few interesting points that you raised that i kind of wanted to go into a bit more but um but yeah so sounds like you do a lot at, at Glossify, um, you know, both from a, a marketing and from a, you know, um, factory floor <laughs> perspective. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I do know what you mean about the sort of thrill of working on in the warehouse. I used to work um, in a warehouse with a few of my colleagues who I actually, I actually worked with here and there was a definite kind of buzz and excitement that you got from... Yeah. Uh, having you know getting the music on and like having to have certain orders out by a certain time it's so I, good and for like our, our new staff members people that have just joined it's such a good way to see the product know how things go out in terms of branding how does that look is that good enough like and we all came away like wow like we can literally improve so much just off the back of a day in a warehouse and i loved it i thought this gets me yeah. out of <laughs> That was yeah, life. it's what I imagine, although maybe not to the same extent, the thrill of working in a a high-intensity high kitchen is like, um, you know, when, when you've got, like, deadlines yeah. in, in the uh, in the warehouse and stuff. So, But, yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, so, I mean, aside from the, the warehouse antics, what would you say is um, yeah. the area of what you do that you most enjoy for Glossify? I'd say... Um, what I've really loved, having come from, you know, quite a varied career, I'd say, you know, I've done tech, I've done hospitality, I've done fashion, like, you name it, I've probably had a go at it. The trust that the founders have in kind of my opinion and what I want to have a go at has been, like, amazing. So I can literally try anything and they'll back it, and I love that. In terms of they're so innovative or like if we think of a product idea, they'll be like, yeah, let's do it. Let's try it. Like it's that thing of like, you know, I've got I've got free reign over stuff and I think freedom in your career is so important. So I love that. I, I think um, classifies like a female led team. So our customers are predominantly female. All of our staff is female. <laughs> um and, you know, I, I love that kind of ethos about the brand because they've built all their products, all their community off the back of, like, 
female empowerment, but not in your usual kind of stereotypical cringe way. It's more genuine support and, like, you know, they want to help women fulfil a great career and bring out products that help them do it quicker and things like that. There's a real core message to why they do what they do, which I love. Um, And then... I'd say just the diversity in terms of, like, I'm never on one thing. So, like I said, I could be down in London going to see the Condé Nast team doing, like, staff manicures with the team, which is incredible. And then, like, you know, the next day, like I said, I could be in the warehouse or I could be, you know, meeting our ambassadors. And, like, it's just great. The variety in terms of the role is really good for someone like yeah. me <laughs> who gets Yeah, there. yeah. So, well, um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can I can empathise with you there because uh, I've I've got ADHD. So yeah, I think having that variation in in yeah. um, in your role is 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 definitely and having that freedom as well um, and the flexibility to yeah. be able to yeah to to do different things or to manage your time in in the way that you see see fit. Um, definitely, I think yeah. you know that the fact that that was kind of like your first. The first kind of response to that question, I think, is mm-hmm. is, re- is really great because, um, yeah, I guess it shows the, yeah, the level of, of passion um, that that you have and and uh, for working at Gossify and also, um, yeah, being part of that team. So yeah, sounds like a really a really good team to be part of. Going into sort of, um, I guess, a bit more of the nitty gritty elements from a from a strategic perspective. Obviously, you mentioned, um, you know, heading up. Um, sort of new strategies, initiatives, campaigns. Um, yeah. So what's, I guess, in terms of the process, what's the the starting point when you kind of coming up with yeah. either, you know, marketing plan for the year, specific sort of seasonal campaigns? Um, you know, what, what do you find yeah. your customers respond best to? Um, of course. I think it's hard because I don't follow the stuff that I hear other people follow. I am very much, I will be watching like whatever on YouTube and I'll be like, that's my idea. And it's usually when I'm doing nothing. So I think what's really important is like mental separation, not constantly on about work. Or I could be watching Netflix and I'm like, right, I need to text them that because that's the idea. Like, it's probably my erratic nature, but it kind of comes in handy for stuff like this, I guess. But with Glossify, what a struggle, what not a struggle, but when I first started there, Glossify is technically B2B to C. So we, it, which is just a, a very bizarre um, kind of setup for a marketer because I need to target that B2B audience of the professional but I also need to drive the kind of brand traction for the end consumer to want a Glossify manicure. <laughs> so, you know, I was kind of like, right, I need to do like a hybrid strategy here of like enticing the consumer, but also building the trust of that professional. So, you know, I started off, I think, when I first joined was like themes. What do we need to do? What are the key pillars? We need obviously need to build trust, establish a community, put out content that's aspirational and people want to have that manicure and then kind of build the strategy off the back of that. And I guess just crazy ideas, really, that came to me in the middle of the night. So, you know, it was a it was a weird kind of hybrid approach of you know analytical and like kind of very linear thought process combined with kind of that creative off the cuff flair I guess yeah Yeah. no I think I think um your point around around trust there I think is 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 quite a quite an interesting one Mm -hmm. um you know in terms of the kind of content campaigns that you would you would push out because like you say there's you need to build trust with the consumer but also primarily initially with the with with the technician um so yeah i mean it, it yeah. has that kind of led to a sort of a sort of two-pronged approach from a from a content perspective or you know or, or is, is it kind yeah. of like rolled into one 
so yeah i'd say i'd say two prongs because you know depending on the day if we look at different platforms like instagram or tiktok whatever we're doing in terms of content one thing they worth noting is that our kind of homemade content always performs best people resonate with it more and I believe that's because we have this community of people that are trying to illustrate our content style they're trying to build their platforms and their kind of customer base and when we do content styles and stuff that's achievable then it's it seems to resonate more with them and they want to kind of do it as well it's interesting so for example like our we recently did a campaign with our head of brand who's also a nail technician and it sold out in 20 minutes and that was all shot on an iPhone in Ibiza with just like a couple of the ambassadors so you know like it clearly shows you don't need massive budgets to kind of for people to resonate and want to buy that product I think it's more on the fact of build the community build the trust and give people a reason to want to buy it and invest in the brand. Yeah. And and in terms of that community building, then can, what what are the sort of channels that that you predominantly focus on? I, I guess at the moment, um, is it kind of predominantly social, or the, a, an influencer led, or are there other areas as well? Yeah, I mean, we utilise. I think one thing we've kind of engaging with your audience and building that trust at the minute that people are losing is like use the stuff on the social channels so we don't need to be spending 10k on an ambassador to put out one message like three times over the course of a year where you can literally use stuff like we do like a weekly poll on instagram and it's like what are your concerns as a nail tech then we use that to tailor the content of what people need to know so or what people are worried about or how they want to use our product or do you know just bits like that often like the most basic forms of engagement and interaction are kind of pushed to one side yeah i think there's yeah there's definitely people get swept up in in trends very quickly and as soon as one person yeah. does it it kind of yeah um, everybody else feels like they should be doing it but yeah, yeah like you say often the 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 most obvious answer i think it's is it occam's razor which is the most obvious answer is is the one that's the the most easy the most easy you know um and yeah. and like you say you utilize people. the tools that you have um especially like you say if there's um if there is if there are smaller budgets involved and and there, you, like mm-hmm. you say you don't necessarily need that um it's kind of just yeah. that level of of human engagement as as you touched on earlier um and understanding human beings and what human beings need and what they respond to so yeah i guess kind of in terms of staying on that topic of of trust i guess um one area i guess that would be interesting to touch on um in terms from a marketing perspective and and how you have sort of responded um from a marketing perspective is you know obviously the with the cost of living situation and the cost of living crisis um so obviously this does impact how consumers engage with brands um the the level at which they they buy from brands um yeah. and yeah obviously off the back of that and obviously off the back of you know the, the covid situation um you know there's there's, a, there's an element that that trust is is really important now more than ever um when you know when you're marketing to to new and existing customers so um how do you sort of find that customers respond to decisions around beauty and well-being products in the context of Mm -hmm. the cost of living crisis so i think glossify slightly different right so if we were talking about a b2c brand um this answer would differ but as we're a professional only brand it's almost like in terms of a general shift a lot of people are now choosing to do their at-home nails the kits are like everywhere the training is not there people are like I can laminate my brows at home I'll do my highlights at home I'll do this at home and people are really trying to you know that's seen as a luxury that's disposable income to go and have your hair or your nails done or something like that so on the flip side of that we're now having to kind of put that extra time and effort into our content communications etc 
on how our technicians that use our products can keep people coming back and see the value in using a professionally trained person to do it and not do it at home and end up with crazy nails or allergies or whatever <laughs> it might yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's a hard one because we're almost trying to train our audience now on how to market themselves. Wow. Like, yeah. you know, how do you how do you show value to keep coming back for a service when, you know, if you're trying to pay your bills to eat, your nails aren't a priority. So it's making people trust in that, you know, to keep that relationship there with their technician or whatever it might be, and also how, like, the technician themselves keeps people coming back. Yeah. It's, it's a yeah, hard one. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. Do, do, I guess kind of from from the, from the a from an actual customer perspective, um, do, you th- do you think it's kind of a case of there's the tech people are, maybe placing extra emphasis on like looking and feeling good um and that that's kind of how potentially um you know technicians can sort of retain retain customers um yeah i, I think it's one of those things like like for example you i'm sure you have a barber you go back to go, every week or whatever, that, actually, whenever yeah, you get yeah. your hair cut. <laughs> yeah there you go so you'll always go back to that person and you build up this relationship with that person to the point of even I know like it's completely different but I have a cleaner and can I afford a cleaner at the minute probably not but that's her livelihood and I appreciate what she does for me just like you you'll love your hair when you walk out and you'll find the room for it so I think people still need that think of they're not just working for nothing and that treat at the end of the month or whatever it might be people people still need us something whether that is a kind of downgrade of that service you know like if we compare it to hair maybe you get half a head of foils rather than a full yeah, head because yeah. <laughs> you're trying to cut yeah, back money yeah. but people will still find a way because you know if not what are you working for if you can't have a yeah treat? yeah and i think like you say people kind of need something um so yeah keep 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 themselves feeling sort of good in themselves and yeah and and yeah like you say a a reward um for for everything that they're doing Mm -hmm. to try and yeah just just get by literally it's hard though because it is like especially people with families it's the first thing to go feeling good or a subscription you know I got made redundant and I was like right Amazon Prime's going like that's it I can't have my Disney Plus anymore and it's these little things where you think right I need to cut that out because that's another expense but everyone has a something that they have to have to feel good and like they've they're working for anything yeah yeah Yeah, I guess it it comes down to a matter of sort of priority and 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 what's really important doesn't it um exactly um yeah, so I guess sort of tying into that slightly, but um, looking at the, I guess, you know, the beauty sector in general, um, aside, I guess, from, you know, um, things that have, trends that have come off the back of uh, the cost of living crisis, you know, from a, from a marketing perspective, mm-hmm. on a kind of more general note, and I guess it kind of, works well as we're moving into the second half of 2023 now but um what what have been and what are i guess the biggest trends that you perceive in in the industry um at the moment are there any sort of common challenges um that cut across sort of all beauty brands or you know it does it vary between Mm -hmm. different subsectors yeah um i think you know we've after covid we saw a real shift from everyone doing like a crazy neon eye makeup to like this simple beauty people wanted one product that does 20 different things in one step they want to that you know they're back commuting after covid they want quick they want speed they want to invest more time at home where it matters not doing their face or their nails or whatever it might be so I think particularly in nails, and I'm sure probably the same for kind of cosmetics or whatever it might be, you know, that simple style has kind of stayed, like, in terms of, like, trends, especially around, like, nail design, whatever that is, you know. And then I think what I... Well, having a little brainstorm before I came on here, um, 
I think there's been a certain degree of like A-list celebs transetting again. So they always have. They always have. But, you know, there was kind of that shift maybe more back in 2020 towards the micro-influencer or your everyday person. Whereas now, I know I'm seeing a lot of kind of, whether it be fashion or, you know, fashion or nails or beauty, people are taking inspiration back from A-listers again. Look at, like, you know, Sophia Ritchie's wedding. Everyone wanted that makeup. Everyone wanted her nails. Everyone wanted her hair. Whereas before, was she that big in the limelight? But they've harnessed her kind of media power in a different way now. And I think I think that's interesting. Like the Renaissance tour for Beyonce. Yeah. yeah. Will that get off my TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> like it's everywhere. Like and people recreating these looks again and kind of having that trust back in A-listers rather than kind of um, I think there'll be quite a shift in terms of like people turning their back on the smaller kind of creators yeah. now do you, do you just so that's an interesting point I think kind of tying the two together do you think there's a there's a, mm-hmm. a shift in A-listers kind of going more towards like simple beauty or simple fashion for example because you know I know mm-hmm. there's been a lot of talk just I guess it's more fashion focused, but you know, off the back of the Succession TV series, there's been a lot mm-hmm. of talk about, um, you know, sort of like understated fashion, um, like hidden, hidden, hidden yeah, wealth, yeah. Um, and yeah, and like, do do you see that sort of being a, a trend of, among other kind of A-listers um, that you mentioned, or is it more kind of yeah. just a shift in mindset? I think, I think it's that. Now, whether it's, you know, a brand, whether it's a person, people are tapping into kind of micro communities, right? So if we look at Beyonce, my example before, she has clearly tapped into the LGBTQ+, plus, you know, all singing, all dancing, vibrant, like, and she appeals now to that market and she has a pull with that. Whereas, you know, we look at, you know, I mean... Other, other kind of creators and things like that and they're appealing to that Y2K movement and like, you know, everything's back in the 2000s and it's edgy and they're all tapping in really well to kind of that crowd, that specific crowd. Like, look at Kim Kardashian. She's clearly going for like, you know, with skims and things like that, the everyday girl and she's using that product to target that person. And I just think it's interesting. They're all clearly, like, honing in on a certain audience now rather than being generic and not really associating with anyone. Yeah, that is... I I can completely uh, agree with that. I think it is interesting um, to see... Because even... I mean, I do, I do love watching the Kardashians, to be fair. Um, yeah, you? But, I mean, <laughs> even um, Chloe, you know, with her brand... Is it American? The... Yeah, good American, good American. Yeah, like, again, relatively simple, just like classic blue denim. Um, and, um But yeah, I guess kind of going back on into the sort of how that reflects in marketing. Um, yeah. Has that, I guess, become something that you've implemented from, mm-hmm. you know, a product marketing perspective, how, what the kind of products that you launch yeah. or how you tap into these micro communities yourselves definitely definitely i mean nails is so particular like you know i i i'm known for not having anything fun on my nails because that is not me and i wear all black whereas someone else sat next to me in the office will love the most vibrant colors and want the craziest designs and i'm like oh my god but it's you know it's harnessing products that work for multiple people so whether we bring out one product that for someone might seem boring, but it's adaptable and you could use that for a different person, I think people are having to be much more creative in how, one, they create products and innovate on products, but also to how they market it in terms of we need to make sure that one product could speak to me, but also, you know, whoever else in terms of the content you put out. So... I think it's just having brands are having to be more clever in terms of how how they market things now and knowing to 
not go so broad and boring and one big campaign that's 200 grand whereas you could do 20 in-house on an iphone or like you know there's there's different ways to do things yeah. now I, think, I guess it minimizes that element of risk as well especially from a you know if you mm-hmm. are kind of a, a growing um challenger or like a smaller sort of startup yeah. um you do kind of have to be yeah. creative you know leverage whatever you can internally like you say go and film something on an iphone um Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah and i think that kind of ties into sort of next question that i was gonna gonna ask because Mm -hmm. yeah obviously um you just touched on there about kind of rivals potential or competitors or aspirational competitors having like massive budgets or like you know big spend being thrown around in in the marketing sphere within beauty um (laughs) so how at Glossify, how do you make those smaller, you know, those impacts um, on a sort of smaller budget? Um, you know, what kind of methodology works best, um, you know, when you're looking to, say, boost yeah. digital performance and engagement? Mm-hmm. So for me, like, uh, we kind of, I think it was before we came on this, but looking at human behaviour, <laughs> like... Literally just understand your customer, guys. This is the this is the thing. Like I see so many brands churning money into digital ads, and I'm like, but you don't know when they're going to see that ad, or you don't know when they check their email. Like, so for me, having a really in depth look at who behaves when and what, like at what point, is integral to stretching your budget. So, for example, even last night we just launched something this morning. Um, people we have we always seem to have this chunk of consumers that buy stuff between two and five a.m in the morning and i'm like guys why are you up because <laughs> it's from the uk <laughs> but you know that's clearly a window of sales for us and maybe they wait night shifts or whatever it might be i don't know but it's it's interesting to look at not just the bigger picture of right we know that 8 p.m someone will be sat on the sofa and they'll open our email and it's like but no what about the other pockets of your audience if they're not doing that at that time yeah I think so timing timing is such an important (laughs) element isn't it um yeah that was something that that we've been you know we've been discussing quite a lot internally on our side as well is um yeah having those timing insights those behavioral insights um and like you say like if you do find that there are those sort of smaller niche audiences that are mm-hmm. coming online at, at, at 2 to 5 a.m., um, then yeah. maybe it's just people that have been on a night out and they're just impulse buying. But yeah, I guess like like you say, it's it's it 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 has value to to be even mm-hmm. if it's on a smaller scale to be investing some resource into those customers and not just going after those sort of more yeah. I guess those kind of more normal hours of, of, of buying yeah. behavior um, because uh, again at those times you can then probably find that you may be up against that's when other competitors are, are targeting their their well, audiences this is the thing as well like you know, over over my career, loads of like more junior staff have been like, right on uh, this report, it says that uh, the best time to post on Instagram is eight o'clock, and I said, guys, like this is the most competitive time. Let's be clever. Let's try like three a.m. so it pops up in the morning. Do you know, when it came up chronologically, and I was like, think outside the box. Don't go for what things are saying is a peak time because yes, it's a peak time that so everyone else is also <laughs> posting. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like it's it's being crafty in like, you know, if we know that people engage with video better in the morning, let's do videos in the morning. Like, you know, it's adapting, and that's not a big budget. That's just being smart with when you do stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like it's all quite kind of affordable. So, um, it's kind of think think smarter, not harder. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and just I think. We're kind of more on a digital ads kind of angle. I've always not been anti-digital, you know, I've worked in tech. I can't say that. I'm also on a digital podcast, so I can't say that. But um, I think people misunderstand that content is te- like 70% of the ad doing well. If we put a rubbish image on or an unengaging bit of copy, 
it's not going to perform. <laughs> so, like, you could have the smallest budget in the world. You could put, like, £50 into a campaign and it do incredibly well because that image has cap captured attention and people want that image or want to be that person. And, like, yeah, I just think sometimes the, the most basic things are overlooked because people have been told, get on TikTok, you need to sell on Pinterest, like... And it's like, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I guess it can end up being, like, there's there's it almost sort of dilutes the actual focus of the brand and the the brand strategy but also like 100%. the marketing strategy because if you, you can end up spreading yourself too thin just because you feel like you have to be present everywhere um yes, and yeah like you say often taking that more sort of medit um not the word calculated um approach yeah. is well, I'm, Luke, I'm sure you see it all the time working for an agency. Brands will be like, right, my mate said I need to go on TikTok, so I'm going on. And you're like, no, this is not the route for you. Like, it's it's hard because there's such a pressure to kind of be on everything and everywhere when it's it's just not Yeah, needed. and like, I guess, you know, in, in beauty, for example, you know, that does more naturally lend itself to tiktok and mm -hmm. visual um content video mm -hmm. content but um yeah i think there are some i think there's a lot of times where brands in maybe other sectors just think oh everybody else is marketing on tiktok but your yeah. audience might not be there so it's yeah it's um follow the mm, crowd yeah yeah <laughs> um, but that's quite an interesting sort of segue into into my next question um you know around quality of content and um yeah but I sort of have to ask, um, and I feel like I may know what your answer might be to this, but um, I'll ask it anyway. But um, obviously, chat GPT and, you know, AI-generated content has been, you know, everywhere recently um, across, you know, loads from an agency side, a brand side, you know, everybody's trying it out and sort of seeing what the, the capabilities are there and the potential. Um, so I guess from your perspective, what, what do you think about about this sort of content and what do you think the opportunities are, if any, or, or risks? Um, and yeah, how do you see it playing mm -hmm. out, I guess, in the beauty sector? Yeah, Luke, I'm so glad you asked this because I could talk about this for about <laughs> six hours. So <laughs> I was like, before I came on this, I was like, right, how do I keep this short? Like, and I was literally I'm speaking at a email conference next year and we were on the phone, me and this woman that's organising it for honestly about an hour talking about just this topic. So, I mean, in terms of overarching opinion is don't fight against it, harness it. So what I'm seeing, even talking, so I guess in terms of a risk, a lot of my friends, you know, really creative, wonderful people that are like, photographers or retouchers or copywriters whatever it might be there's this sense of like insecurity now my job is going it's all ending I, I can't do this anymore because chat gpt is going to write all the copy for websites you know there's like machine learning now and like ai that can create a website in five minutes like it's it's scary to most people so I think that's a risk in terms of if people do not adapt and work with this technology and use it for efficiency, to speed up the process, to do the retouching faster, to get stuff back to clients quicker, then yes, you will be scared and you'll think, oh my God, it's coming from my job, robots yeah, are taking Skynet over. Is there, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, whereas if we look at like beauty, you know, people can spend hours retouching you know, dry, if we use nails, dry skin around nails. Whereas, like, with, with, the, with, like, this kind of technology that's coming in, it's, you know, more so, like, the Photoshop ones and stuff like that. People can do so, stuff so much faster and more refined and take the kind of legwork out of things. You know, I literally, the, the other day, I was like, right, I need to give in and I need to just have a go at using it. So I was like... You know, write me a six-month marketing plan for um, Glossify, blah, blah, blah. And it, I, I was like, wow, like, that's incredible. And it, it sparked the baseline of what I wanted to do. So I'm not, I'm not going to use that to do a marketing plan and it replaced me, but it was a good baseline to get my yeah, ideas I going. I think as, as a – the way I – well, 
I personally have seen it so far and used it is more as kind of like, yeah, almost like a t- an in- in- bit of inspiration, a bit of like a, t- a, yeah. a tool, but ultimately that can support the the more human process of these things because that's kind of where mm-hmm. you do get, I think, yeah, you get the that sort of unique creativity that, that individuals have um, and you mm-hmm. also... You, you you do need that human element of as as we've said a couple of times so far um you know you need that human yeah. element of of understanding audiences and understanding people's behavior and how people like to be engaged with um and i think mm-hmm. yeah that's still something that very much um will have most value when when looked at by um by humans <laughs> um but 100% it like it won't replace people I think there's always you know even I, I've worked in tech companies and I find this so interesting and you know like AI machine learning whatever it is I think it's incredibly clever if you use it in the right way whereas I do feel like you know creatives especially and I feel sad for them are scared copywriters one of my friends was saying that like her profits have gone down 50% in two months and it's like, that's worrying because now there's this nature of nobody has to be good at anything with tools like this. You want to be a copywriter? Get on chat GPT. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, no, no, people have learned their craft and they just need to use it in a different way, whether that's efficiency, like I said, or that baseline idea to adapt on. Nothing will ever take away like a human skill set or what they've learned over years and their, you know, nature. Yeah. yeah. I guess. Yeah, because I think there's from a marketing, there's so much, you know, from brand perspective and how you position that brand in your marketing strategy. There's so much about yeah. personality of brand that then sort of needs to be reflected yeah. in people that are like representing that brand mm-hmm. um, and how that brand's Definitely. put across. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's exciting. We just need to use it in the right way and use it for like deeper industry insight and more more thorough understanding. Like it's as clever or as stupid as you make it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So just learning to use it the right way that's like at a comfortable level for whoever's using it, I think, across the beauty sector. Yeah. Um <clears throat> so just Kind of on the moving on to the 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 final parts of our podcast. Um, so I guess yeah, well obviously we've touched on content, we've touched on chat GPT, we've touched on brand positioning, messaging, audience behaviours. Um, but and I obviously know that earlier on when we discussed you know the kind of behaviour insights. Um, that you, you find valuable um, when looking to plan sort of marketing strategies. But from a sort of data and insight perspective, um, is what, sorry, sort of, sorry, let me rephrase that. Do you use data um, to inform, you know, marketing strategies, product launches, campaigns? Um, and if so, what, um, you know, what are those? And, and are yeah. there any that you think could potentially be sort of useful um for you know beauty brands and also non-beauty brands as well definitely so even despite saying that i'm i'm not the most digital person you can't go off nothing so it's having a really holistic view of what is performing on different platforms you know stuff like engagement i often find engagement so much more important to look at than likes are people engaged but just maybe not clicking the like? I'm very frugal with my like button now. Yeah. No one's getting so a like actually, from me. Yeah, have. So, <laughs> you know, so even like even that kind of behaviour's changed. People are more selective with what they engage with. So, you know, looking at stuff like engagement rather than likes, things like that, looking at I think one that's often overlooked, everyone's looking at, you know, the the kind of Google Analytics or like the generic insights on like Meta, but when something that people often miss, especially if you're selling product like beauty, have you ever done a heat map on your website? Where do your customers drop off? Stuff like that. Again, it's more on behaviour, but like if you're consistently seeing 
people drop off at the checkout basket. Why? Do you know what I mean? It's stuff like that. Again, it kind of, it all links back to behaviour, but there's clearly like, I think you can learn an awful lot from heat maps on websites, an awful lot. And to sit down with a team and do like a day on it, how can we improve this? What do you find boring? Always to my team, I'm like, what do you find boring? On the website, where would you not look? Do you know what I mean? And it's really useful to have kind of internal opinion coupled with data and then behaviour. They're like the three things for me in terms of like how to analyse something. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good summary of like of of, of that sort of answer. Um, and I think I, I would agree with you on the on the heat map point as because you you as an SEO agency, you know ICS UXs and user interface, you know, yeah. optimising the user journey and, and optimising conversions is, yeah. is, you know, quite an integral part of, of what we do. So, you know, like you say, heat maps are incredibly valuable um, from that perspective yeah. because, you know, you could get thousands of clicks through to a landing page, but if people drop off as soon as they get, as soon as they get to that page, then it's kind of doesn't really sort of work. <laughs> um, you know, you're not just doing, you know, pay-per-click campaigns for the good of your health for everyone to just land and be like, okay, bye, guys. You know what yeah. I mean? So you need to look at it yeah. from a, a full experience. Like, is that investment even worth it? Should you be doing a PBC campaign? Should you be looking at your SEO and how to optimise that? Should you look at your copies? your copy boring? Are people finding it unfulfilling to read? There's so much stuff, like, and it's looking at it from a a very, I don't know how to word it, but like take a step back, ask your friends, are, are they intrigued by the brand you work at? If they're not, you're doing something really wrong. Like, you know, it's it's kind of like using data with opinion in like, yeah, I don't no, know how no, to No, no, I think, it. well, I think exactly how you phrased it earlier around like that holistic approach and more having a more objective view on, I think a lot of people can be caught up on clicks and traffic um, you know, maybe either from, you know, digital PR campaigns or paid campaigns. Yeah. Um, but then if that isn't joined up, as you say, with a with an on-site strategy, especially from an SEO perspective, um, a user experience perspective, content, then um, mm -hmm. that can sort of have negative impacts, um, even if you're off, off page, um, outwards sort of yeah. strategy is, you know, is, is working. Well, yeah, so just to kind of wrap things up then as a, as a final question, because um, I know obviously earlier we, we touched on how, I think it was before the call, um, we were talking about how um, it's quite a small and, and tight-knit team at, at Glossify. So yeah. um, how, you know, in within your specific um, situation at Glossify and the um, the way the, the brand is and where it is in terms of its its timeline, how have you and how are you building sort of high-performing teams in that sort of environment? For me, it's learning whether that you're a founder or whether you're a head of department. You're not good at everything. So, like, for example, for me, I am not good at digital. I get bored, I drop off, like, unless there's some meat behind it. So having people in really specialist areas that are good at what they do is so important, whether that is junior and they've just got a passion and you know they're on a really low salary but they want to learn and they're so passionate about a certain area or whether they've got 50 years in the industry and they're you know they they know their craft and they're good at it it's having that really blended team of like passion but also history and career so I think that's important knowing where you're not good <laughs> well, hold yeah, your hands up yeah yeah I think, <laughs> I think yeah. it's it's something that people always well sometimes can see as weakness but ultimately it's it is the most efficient way of actually getting something real and, and good um mm -hmm. going because yeah if, if everybody's just pretending to be good then that's going to come back to bite you i think yeah. but, um literally and having a blend of kind of you know people with like different backgrounds like I've never done nails. I've got. I had no idea what half the products were when I started at Gotify, but I had the knowledge on kind of growth. Whereas you know, we've brought in people that have done nails for twenty years, and they are so good at what they do. 
So this kind of, again, like a hybrid approach, we've just brought on a social media manager that worked for magazines. Very different. She doesn't know what like half the product is. But it's this really varied variety of background and opinion that are really important in startups. People have to talk out. People have to be critical of the brand for it to grow. And, you know, when you have a mixed opinion part, mixed ability part, it's it's the best, in yeah. my opinion. Like, Yeah, I think, um, as you say, it's, it's, it's kind of creating that sort of beautiful melting pot, isn't it? And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, literally. Yeah, and like having not just kind of those skills, but also having a blend of like different personalities as well, like diversity of just people, so like you say, in, you know, backgrounds and people with different perspectives who are open-minded and, and want to kind of share ideas. Um, yeah. Definitely. And then I think the final thing for me, what I look for anyway in building a team is no ego, we like I said, like the warehouse staff at Glossify give me great marketing ideas, and I'm always like, "Girls, get in here! Like, tell me." No one is above or beneath. Like, everyone has to chip in. Everyone has to work hard and have that drive. But also, the whole thing of like taking a risk. If you have an idea, run with an idea. We're a startup. We're meant to challenge the norm. So it's this, it's a very particular personality, I think, that startups look for or that I look for or our founders. But it's, again, it's kind of all linking back to community and, like, people wanting the good of the brand and being passionate and, like, it kind of links everywhere when you look at, like, a mm. business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, and, yeah, quite a sort of optimistic and, and exciting and forward thinking sort of way to to close off off the podcast really yeah um yeah it kind of makes you ex- well i've kind of left it feeling quite motivated um faced to- oh, <laughs> i love it i'll be a life coach let me give up go- yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, you can be no sometimes it's good it's good to focus on these things that can be easily mm. fixed. Like I keep saying, oh, this is so achievable for every yeah, brand. Yeah. It's just like it's just like focus, <laughs> you know. Yeah, thank you very much. That was uh, that was great. Yeah, it's been great chatting to you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and yeah, hope hope that we can uh, yeah chat again soon. Yeah.